0: This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock?
1: Tech story is front and centre. What
0: will this wind up doing to the cost curve?
2: Your connection from the London market close to the US market action.
1: A significant sell-off in European assets. It
2: feels like
0: a lot of these stocks have already priced that in.
1: This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. With Guy
0: Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years. On Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. Welcome 5pm in the City of London. You are listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. Um, There's a lot going on today. The Bank of England obviously front and centre, but we had the Fed last night. Uh, You've got ongoing shenanigans in the nickel market. Uh, And then, of course, the overarching theme that is dominating the news agenda at the moment, the situation in Ukraine. We'll try and cover all of this for you during this hour. Let me just update you on the price action. Um, In terms of equity markets today, actually, It's been a fairly decent day for the FTSE 100, bouncing back up by 1.28%. That takes it back into positive territory for the year um, as a result of the fact that we've seen a big, big pickup in commodity prices today, uh, which has meant that the energy sector in particular has led. The FTSE 100 also benefits, uh, as we see, underperformance coming through, relative underperformance going through uh, from the British pound as well. That relative underperformance uh, is down to the fact that the Bank of England today delivered a 25 basis point hike. Um, but basically caveated it with a lot of concern about the growth picture. Very different pictures of the Fed. We'll discuss this in just a moment. Um, before we do that, let get me get you a headline update. Uh, here is Charlie Cutters.
3: Thank you very much indeed, Guy. The Bank of England today raised its key interest rate for the third successive policy meeting, taking borrowing costs back to their pre-pandemic level and warning the war in Ukraine may push inflation well above 8% later this year. Sarah Hewan is head of Europe and America's research at Standard Chartered Bank in London.
0: We have rising inflation. Uh, inflation, 8%, looks likely could even go to double digits later this year. And although the data that we've had so far for the UK economy have been pretty positive for January and February, um, there is a clear concern about the squeeze in living standards that is to come.
3: American President Joe Biden will be speaking tomorrow with Chinese President Xi Jinping as the US leader looks to shore up global pressure on Russia to halt its war in Ukraine. And President Vladimir Putin is warning he will cleanse Russia of the so-called scum and traitors he accuses of working covertly for the U.S. and its allies as the government steps up pressure on domestic critics of his war against Ukraine. P&O Ferries has slashed 800 jobs in an effort to cut losses, igniting a clash with workers that will play havoc with all-important English Channel crossings. The surprise move to eliminate more than a quarter of its workforce disrupted services even before the formal announcement. In a follow-up tweet, P&O Ferries said ships will not be sailing for the next few days. That's the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London.
1: Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Charlie, we'll be back in around 30 minutes time to update us on the headlines. But let's get back to the story that Charlie started with there. Uh, the decision by the Bank of England to raise interest rates by 25 basis points today, basically taking us back to levels we last saw before the pandemic. What was interesting here and the compare and contrast with the Fed, I think, is, is useful is that while the Fed focused on a solid growth outlook and the need to tackle inflation, the Bank of England upgraded its inflation expectations. as We were just hearing inflation is going to go significantly higher, but focused more on the growth aspects of what is happening in the UK economy and the potential slowdown, the cost of living squeeze uh, that is coming to hit most consumers. As a result of which, we saw a significant repricing uh, in the short end of the bond market. The money market's pricing out the possibility of a 50 basis point hike next time round. Uh, It was a much more dovish statement. The many people were anticipating. And Deputy Governor John Cunliffe even voted for no change. For more, let's bring in David Goodman. Um, he is a UK economy reporter and actually spent most of the day locked in the dungeons of the Bank of England. Uh, we brought him back up to answer some of the questions that we need uh, answering when it comes to the bank. David, this was a really big shift from the Bank of England. Just walk us through why and the implications of it.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting to talk about the Fed because I think the Bank of England have been well out in front of this tightening cycle we've seen. They hiked in December, they hiked again in February, and, and again today. So they've they've been they've done three very early hikes, kind of before the Fed's even got started. I think what we've seen happen today is, in in kind of opposition to what the Fed was saying about the, the need for more hikes further out, they've been far more cautious. And I think there's a couple of things that going on. They're really obviously worried about inflation. They think inflation is going to kind of spike maybe even threaten double digits depending on how things go with um, energy prices from now on but the implication there is that's going to really hurt growth that's going to hurt consumers hurt consumer spending and kind of bring down inflation anyway because demand's completely sapped from the economy and employment's going to go up that's really going to hurt and that's what John Cunliffe who surprisingly voted for no change in rates that was his real argument that this is going to be there's a lot of uncertainty around there's going to be a squeeze in households. The economy isn't in great shape. We we shouldn't be hiking rates at this point. We should wait and see how things kind of. So a very
1: different approach in terms of the 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 view of inflation. Inflation is going to suppress demand, rather than the Fed's view that it needs to be kind of crushed out of the demand story by rising interest rates.
4: Yeah, and I think I mean the BoE has obviously done more than the Fed and, and maybe closer to what it sees as a neutral policy setting than the Fed. So I think you have to see it in that context yeah. that. Once you hit that neutral policy setting, I mean, there's nothing the BOE can do about energy prices. They've said that time and time again. They're going to go up whatever. It's this kind of domestically generated inflation that they're worried about. And that comes through from, from wage increases and, and other but things.
1: The, the danger with this strategy, presumably, is that we get into a wage price spiral.
4: Yes, that is a danger. Um, if you look at what the BOE, BOE's agents are saying, they're saying that there might be pay increases of between 4 and 6% this year. That's that's quite a lot by historical standards that hasn't happened at all but obviously yeah. that's still below, well below the peak of inflation and I think we've talked about this a lot today on, on our team but it's whether that whether workers are going to have kind of ingrained expectations of, 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 of pay hikes going forward and if you look at some of the other the other data from what workers are expecting it seems unlikely that they're going to expect 6% this year and then 6% again next year which is how you obviously get that yeah. their wage price but it's probably more likely that they'll they rec- everyone recognises this is a very kind of unusual transitry. year yeah tran- maybe <laughs> but this is an unusual year for pay everyone knows that and that is why people are going to get higher pay increases this year but then maybe especially if, if you're looking at unemployment and that increases as well towards yeah. the end of this year that's going to worry people about asking for these hikes if i think about
1: how what the fed is what the bank of england sorry what the bank of england is signaling here it is stagflation isn't it
4: yeah i mean they're saying that the, the, they are the the outlook for growth is is a lot weaker and inflation is going to be close to ten percent. I mean, that's that, fact. that is that, yeah, that you, We are in a stagflationary environment. Yeah, yeah, I think so.
1: How much pressure is now on Rishi Sunak next week?
4: Well, I mean, he obviously he can do far more about this near term squeeze on households. The BoE can't do anything about that. It's it's more about what they can kind of do further out. For for Sunak, I suppose. He's already taken steps to mitigate against the the April price cap coming, pr- price increases yeah. for energy, which come in. The UK is in a better position than others because it has this mechanism which kind of delays yeah. and smooths out energy bill increases. So, for households, he could do something on benefits. He could, benefits lag in terms of they're operated by inflation, but it's more lagging. So he could bring forward the increases. I think benefits are going to increase by around three percent at the moment. Obviously, that's terrible yeah. if prices are going up by eight, ten percent. So. I think he may try and bring some of that forward to to bring the hit, and also businesses he'll need to help as well because they aren't protected unless they're hedged, which a lot of small businesses probably aren't. They're going to be far more hard hit right. by these increases that are coming. How
1: much of the government's costs? Is index linked? That's
4: a good question. It is. There's a substantial increase from inflation, and also there's a substantial increase in their costs from higher BOE rates because. Yep. They've got oh, 850000000000 50 billion billion-ish now of, of outstanding gilts that are yeah. financed. That, so they've gone up by 20 basis funds. But what
1: are pension Pensions are pegged to... RPI. And, yeah, which is running at really high rates yeah. at the moment. So presumably, like, government costs... The the, the the amount of money, the available amount of money that the Chancellor has to play with is actually, as a result of inflation, being significantly reduced. Yes,
4: although the impact on tax actually offsets that to to degree and sometimes even outweighs it. I mean, the IFS had some numbers out that were saying because of the, they've frozen the test thresholds and you've got inflation running so high that actually they've got like, it's 20 billion more, something like that, that they're going to get from taxes than they thought. So I think actually my colleague Phil wrote about this, that there's actually, he's going to be in a fairly decent position in terms of the public finances at the moment.
1: Great stuff, David. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Okay. That wraps things up. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to we Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. So more chaos in the nickel market over at the LME today. Uh, they tried to open it. It didn't last long. Um, we now have 8% trading bans, but even they cause problems. Uh, and we had further glitches in terms of orders that were entered and not fulfilled, completed. Um, it's going to be a long process if we're going to get London nickel prices down to where they're trading in Shanghai. Um, So let's talk about this, because in some ways this is hugely embarrassing for the LME uh, and in some ways hugely problematic for the metals markets. And there's a danger that things could spread. Grant Sporey, Bloomberg Intelligence, Metals and Mining and Commodities Analyst, joining us now on the line. Grant, uh, the market opened again today. The idea was we were going to have bigger trading bands uh, and that would allow a more um, that would allow the process to unfold more smoothly. It didn't happen. What happened?
5: Uh, hi, Guy. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so, what it seems is there was a bit of a technical glitch. They set the the eight percent limit down, um, but I think on the uh, on the select system, it was still uh, set at at five percent. So, that created a lot of um, confusion where some some traders tried to uh, try to put through trades at the eight percent limit down, and uh, and the system failed. So they had to reopen at a later stage. Um, I think just you know, given where as you pointed out, the, the Shanghai Futures Exchange prices trading and where the last set was for the LME, uh, perhaps the LME should have, uh, should have started off with wider limits and then reduced them on a day-by-day basis to try and get, get us down to somewhere close to where the Shanghai market is trading. Um, I, I think they were you know, way too optimistic to set it at 5% on day one, but I guess they had to take their members into account.
1: Is there a danger that this chaos spreads to other markets?
5: Um, I, I'd say there would be a lower chance that it would spread to other markets just simply because nickel is one of the smaller metals markets. Um, so I suppose if you if you were worried about contagion effect, the one that may be affected would be tin, which is smaller than nickel. Um, but I would suggest that you know copper, uh, zinc, Aluminium are much bigger markets, much more liquid, uh, and probably less affected by, or should be less affected by, what's happening in 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 Russia and uh, in Ukraine, and uh, and the the knock-on effect from sanctions. So, I I, I think I don't see it it spreading to, to other metals markets. And clearly, the Aluminium would have learned its lesson, um, and would have and and will. Perhaps be thinking, and we'll start to put limits on some of the other other markets as well.
1: Do, do just explain to people: it, it, is this going to affect? How does this affect the availability of nickel in the real world?
5: Well, well it could have a, an effect at the margin. So we've seen some of the stainless steel producers in in, in Europe saying we're, we're not going to buy any nickel. Now, it's only sort of been a delay for, for, for less than a week um, so that everybody probably has stockpiles and that they can, they can use those stockpiles in the real world. So for right here, right now, it shouldn't impact, uh, it shouldn't impact the real world. But people relying on the LME as a price-finding mechanism, um, even if they're exchanging metal not necessarily through the exchange, need, need a price to, to work off. And it's very different, difficult for buyers and sellers to agree on a price without a a nice liquid market to which we've all become accustomed to. So for now, it's probably not, not a serious impact in the real world. But as it drags on, I think it does become more and more of an issue. Um, so, you know, as a, as a stainless steel company, you know, how do you, how do you price your, your next batch of nickel? Um, right. And it's difficult for a seller to say, well, you know, you could price it on historical pricing because prices move. So I think that it, it, as long as it doesn't last too long, I think we're OK for now. OK,
1: okay Grant, we're going to leave you there. Thank you very much indeed. Grant Swarrow joining us on what is happening in the nickel market. Uh, coming up next, uh, we're going to hear from Bridgewater. Karen Tambor joins us next uh, to give us her take on where we are with the Fed whether or not actually the market is pricing the Fed correctly. That conversation next. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Stocks and bonds are betting on a magical scenario where economic expansion continues even while the Federal Reserve raises rates to combat inflation. That's the view of Bridgewater Associates executive Karen Carinal Tambor, some of you a legend in the investing world. I caught up with her earlier. Let's take a listen.
2: The bond market is basically pricing in a relatively moderate increase in interest rates when you put in perspective just how far inflation has risen. And if you break down the bond market pricing between the real interest rates and the expected inflation, which you can do, of course, with the curve on inflation-linked bonds, you can see that while inflation is expected to be high for the next year or so, maybe two, it's expected to pretty quickly come down afterwards. That's why longer-end rates are relatively low. And so, more or less, the bond market and the stock market together are priced um you know, kind of a magical scenario where the Fed tightens not that much. It doesn't kill the expansion because you still have equity prices doing what they're doing and inflation magically comes down. And if you look at history, that looks pretty unlikely. And it really to me echoes of what happened in 1973 when inflation pressures were already the highest had been in a long time. Then you get a big geopolitical shock that's exogenous. And it's just not pleasant to be in the Fed's shoes and tighten into an exogenous supply shock uh, in commodities that has to do with geopolitical events, doesn't have to do with domestic demand. It's just easy to fall behind the curve in that situation when you're reasonably worried about the stagflationary impacts that could happen. But you saw what happened in the 70s. Uh, It's very easy to fall behind the curve, and it's a very bad situation for investors.
0: Karen, I think the equity market anyway, at least my perception of the equity market, is that they're sort of leaning on the employment situation and the steady growth as indicated by employment figures, which is certainly a key characteristic difference between now and 1973, when unemployment peaked or troughed all the way back in 69, when it was on its way up persistently over a period of years into that 73 correction. Can you talk to us a little bit about your aspect, your outlook for growth and how that's playing into your your thesis that this is another 73? Are there key differences that we should be mindful of and do you see something more nefarious coming for the employment markets?
2: No, I agree with you. I think growth is incredibly strong and self-sustaining. And really, inflation and how difficult it is to contain inflation is the main parallel. You have um, a very strong cyclical expansion that at this point is very self-sustaining. It started out getting stimulation from both the Fed and fiscal. But once you get that going and you know, more income creates more spending, more income creates more spending, it tends to be incredibly self-sustaining. And that's why you see inflationary pressures everywhere. It's very broad. It's not in, you know, one area where there's a particular supply constraint. You see it pretty much in every sector, uh, everywhere you look. And that's why it's going to be so hard to cut it off and probably require yep. a lot more tightening than currently being priced.
1: Karen, if this is 73, where do I want to be? Where do I not want to be?
2: Well, the thing you learn is that... You know, nominal bonds are the worst possible thing you can hold because as inflation keeps picking up, as the Fed needs to tighten into that, the bond market tends to lag that move. That's probably the last thing that you want to hold. Probably the easiest switch to make if you need to hold bonds is to just switch them into inflation-linked bonds because then you will just get paid whatever CPI prints. And you've seen over the last, you know, a few months already what it's been like to be an inflation-linked bond investor relative to a nominal bond investor. You're getting paid those prints as the coming in very high. You get paid headline inflation, whatever it prints. Um, in addition to that, you know, most people don't have a lot of commodity exposure. And from my perspective, that is one of the best possible ways to diversify uh, your portfolio, to have a very direct exposure to those supply shocks remaining, to having demand continue to outstrip supply, and to having a squeeze across all the things that we use.
0: Karen, given your role as co-CIO of sustainability there at Bridgewater, I think we'd be remiss not to uh, leverage your insights on what's going on with the energy materials space as well as generally sustainable supply chains around the world. Uh, your team's done this great work recently, talking about you know the, the necessity of governments getting engaged and spending on a transition to cleaner sources of energy. How do you see what's going on in the world right now as either promoting that thesis and really pushing governments in that direction, or potentially even de- detracting that idea and really pushing it to the back burner as we contend with this crisis? Well, I think
2: that there's a strong political consensus, especially in Europe, that climate change needs to be curbed and we need to transition our energy infrastructure and the world's energy base away from where it is today to one that has significantly lower emissions. That said, you know, there are two basic ways to do it. And, you know, they make sense. One, you could take all the quote unquote bad things like oil, coal, things that create carbon emissions and raise their prices, whether that's through carbon pricing, through stopping the supply. The other thing you can do is subsidize the good things, make the renewables cheaper, directly spend fiscal resources on expanding renewable um, supply. And what was happening ahead of this crisis is a lot of the efforts to curb climate change, where governments were most serious about it, like Europe, were very focused on raising the prices. So Mm -hmm. carbon pricing, taking coal offline, that sort of thing. Now you get this big shock and, you know, you're basically having energy prices rise in a, in a way that's not that conducive to tackling climate change, because obviously the squeeze on something like natural gas, less bad for the environment, is much less bad than and much worse than the squeeze on, say, coal, which is significantly worse. And in my view, the political will to keep tackling climate change through raising energy prices is going to fall. It was already very low, it was impossible to think about carbon pricing in the US, political will to do it into this environment, it's just not going to make sense to use these inflationary tools of raising energy prices being the way that you try to address climate change. Um, The path to deal with that, and you're seeing Europe already eye at this and start kind of hinting this direction, is to go make renewables cheaper, go spend, you know, go have big fiscal programs and double, triple your efforts to go get more renewables online faster.
1: Karen, Karen Tambour of Bridgewater Associates, uh, talking to Gina White and Adams and myself a little bit earlier on. Um, up next, there's a, a really important conversation going to happen tomorrow between the president of China, China, Xi Jinping, and the president of the United States, Joe Biden. Um, the, the US is trying to put pressure on China to exert influence over Russia to end this war in Ukraine. That conversation between those two leaders is going to happen first thing tomorrow morning. This follows obviously the statement that was delivered yesterday by President Biden announcing further weapon shipments to Ukraine in order to support the ongoing fight there against Russian forces. We're going to talk about all of this next and what the latest is from Washington DC. Joe Matthew is going to join us. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening, welcome back. for you're listening to The Cable, uh, half past the hour, uh, we need to give you an update on what is happening with the markets, what's happening uh, in the wider world. Let's talk first of all about the markets, then we'll get an update from Charlie Pellet. Um, the Dow Jones is currently up by 7 tenths of 1%, the SP is up by 7 tenths of 1% as well. So we're seeing a little bit of a rally uh, in US stocks. The FTSE 100 today actually had a really solid session. The reason for that, oil prices are up very strongly, plus also the Bank of England, probably a little bit more dovish than anticipated. So that's brought the pound down relative to some of the other currencies out there, not necessarily against the US dollar. Uh, But nevertheless, both of these two factors coming together to really support the FTSE 100, but the energy factor, probably the more significant of the two. So what are we seeing in oil prices right now? Uh, You've got a big pickup in the price of brain crude. It's up by 8.38%. We're back well above... One hundred bucks a barrel one hundred and six is where we are currently trading, as I say, the pound under a little bit of pressure today it is still up against the dollar, but the euro is up much more, up by eight tenths of one percent trading one eleven twenty eight this despite the fact that the Fed raised rates by interest uh, by twenty five basis points last night uh, and pointed to the fact that it's going to raise basically for every meeting that it's going to have for the rest of this year. Um, we'll wait and see ultimately whether or not that turns out to be the case. The expectation is that the Fed will struggle to deliver that without damaging growth that's the fear of the Bank of England that inflation is ultimately going to damage growth, that raising rates is going to hit growth. Today, the Bank of England raised by 25 basis points, but basically signalled that it may be nearing the end of this, this cycle. Despite the fact that inflation is going to continue to rise, uh, we saw John Cutliffe, Cunliffe, the deputy, Director, the deputy governor sorry, over at the Bank of England, voting for no change today, as a result of which UK front-end rates, the UK two-year gilt, down very sharply today by 11 point seven basis points so that's what's happening in the markets right now let's get a headline update here's charlie pellet
3: thank you guy johnson russian president vladimir putin is warning he will cleanse his nation of the so-called scum and traitors he accuses of working covertly for the united states and its allies as the government steps up pressure on domestic critics of his war against ukraine Energy also remains front and center in Europe, given the Russian invasion of Ukraine. David Page is head of macroeconomics at AXA Investment
5: Management. I mean, the epicenter of this is, is Europe, um, and the, the key channel is not really proximity, it's, it's the energy markets and the direct exposure that you have to that. So we think of the Eurozone, but you know, the UK is on the same gas hub as the Eurozone. So the, the transmission through gas prices
6: is, is, is serious.
3: Britain's P&O ferries have slashed 800 jobs in an effort to cut losses igniting a clash with workers that is playing havoc with all important English channel crossings. The surprise move to eliminate more than a quarter of its workforce disrupted services even before that formal announcement as the Dover-based company called its ships into port in a follow-up tweet. p Ferries said ships will not be sailing for the next few days. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson back to you now in London.
1: Charlie Pellett, thank you very much indeed. Tomorrow, the President of the United States, Joe Biden, will have a conversation with his opposite number in China, Xi Jinping. The objective of this conversation, from a US point of view, is to try and see whether or not China can be persuaded to dissuade Russia continuing with the conflict in Ukraine. Joining us now from Washington DC, Blue Boast Joe Matthew. Joe, talk us through the objectives the specific objectives that the White House is likely to look for in this conversation?
7: Well, to, well, look, the objectives are, it kind of depends. I think they have a couple of different scenarios, Guy, that, that they're gaming for here. Number one is this idea that China would suffer severe consequences, as we keep hearing from the administration, should it bankroll uh, Russia's war in Ukraine or provide actual military hardware. We had this report earlier in the week that Russia was seeking drones, for instance. But there's more to it than that. And by the way, the White House has never qualified what severe consequences mean. Earlier this week, the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan spent a seven-hour meeting with China's top diplomat when they met in Rome to imagine seven hours what they must have discussed. So there are, you know, there, there's a hope, however, that it's not that hard to persuade China to not bankroll this war and, in fact, maybe help the United States in seeking some kind of a ceasefire. Everyone stands to gain by that in the U.S.-China scenario here, knowing, of course, Guy, uh, as you do, that China depends so heavily upon the U.S. and other Western trading yeah. partners to keep its economy going. It really can't afford to push this a lot further.
1: Is there anything the U.S. can offer China? I said it in China once in order maybe to facilitate this?
7: Well, that point, you know, it's a good question because the, the sanctions that are going to be coming out of the uh, the House now, and they just marked up a bill this morning in the House Financial Services Committee, is pressing for secondary sanctions. This is the, the, the term we're hearing a lot from, particularly Republican critics of the White House don't think the, the Biden administration has been hard enough on Russia. They want to start sanctioning other countries or organizations that do business with Russia. So, you know, this might be, uh, th- there may be a carrot and a stick, but we're hearing mainly about the sticks right now, Guy, when it comes to China. They say you just don't want to go there. They're already having economic trouble. There's a shutdown underway in parts of the country due to COVID. If they started to get hit by sanctions uh, by the United States, it would make life a lot more difficult. Remembering that China has not been making good on its uh, trade agreement with the U.S., this phase one trade agreement in which it didn't buy any of the imports that it had promised to. So the U.S. definitely has some issues to press here. The official line, by the way, from the White House is that we're going to be talking about our competitiveness are two competing nations. Oh, and by the way, the war in Ukraine. This is, this is not a normal call. This is about the war and exactly what price China would pay if it pushed it a little bit too far with Russia.
1: It, wh- why would China not play ball here? Like it's, it's made it very clear yeah. that it wants to stand shoulder to shoulder with Russia. It sees spheres of influence as being important in its future mm-hmm. and in Russia's future. Why would it want to play ball with the United States here?
7: This is a great question. Uh, the que- You know, it, I think it's more about how much China potentially has to lose here. You remember that when, when Vladimir Putin went to China, went to Beijing for the Olympics, he stood there with President Xi. They shook hands and announced this unlimited uh, so-called relationship. Uh, things have changed a lot since then, is, especially in the messaging from Beijing. Before the invasion happened... They were accusing the United States of inflaming tensions, of hyping war. They were uh, backing Russia in its demand to have its security concerns acknowledged, in the, in the words of China. After the invasion started, though, these, uh, these messages started to change quite a bit. They condemned the killing of civilians. And just yesterday, uh, China's envoy to Ukraine told the mayor of Lviv that China is a friend of Ukraine and that we will never attack you. This is a remarkable turnabout in messaging that leads us to believe China knows that there's some trouble in, in, in getting too close to Russia.
1: Joe, yesterday the president talked about providing further weapons to Ukraine in its fight against Russia. What do we yeah. know about those weapons?
7: Well, we're going to send some drones over there. That was one of the big questions, is whether, in fact, we would send armed drones, not just reconnaissance drones. This is pretty high-tech stuff. You know that they've been demanding these fighter jets, or I shouldn't use that word. They've been asking uh, passionately for these fighter jets from Poland, and they haven't gotten them yet, and there's no reason to believe that that'll happen right now the Pentagon has decided that it would be better uh, use to send the drones over we sent a hundred of them and there's more where that came from uh, in terms of the s-300 missile defense system these are the big sort of mobile missile defense systems that you can aim up to the sky and knock a long-range uh, cruise missile out of the sky they're Russian made and our our partners in Slovakia has provided some of those to Ukraine as well the Secretary of Defense is over there making that announcement today and in fact, then you've got uh, thousands, millions, in fact, rounds of ammunition, small arms, uh, mortars that they're going to be replenishing quite a bit. Everything short of the MiG-29 fighter jets that Zelensky was asking for as recently as yesterday.
1: Joe, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed for the ongoing coverage. Always out of a Washington, pleasure. D. C., Bluebirds, Joe Matthew. Up next, P&O ferries halting crossings both across the North Sea and the English Channel for the next few days. it sacked 800 sailors. What on earth is going on? We're going to talk about this next. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. P&O Ferries has halted crossings for the next few days. It sacked 800 sailors. There is chaos reigning at a number of u k ports. What on earth is going on? Bloomberg transport reporter sid R. Philip joining us now to try and explain sid what 's going on
8: so uh, p o started off the day with uh, suspending operations and they asking them asking crews to bring back cruise ship uh, ferries back into port and Then we sort of got in sort of news that they were planning mass redundancies and finally the company announced that they were slashing 800 jobs in a bid to cut losses and that's triggered protests by workers and essentially unions have asked ferry workers to stay on board their ships and it's really disrupted uh channel crossings as well as fired workers refusing to leave their posts.
1: i understand that private security was used to try and take some of those workers off what do we know about that
8: so, according to the unions, uh, the p hired private security guards with handcuffs to pull off workers who were refusing to leave ships. And while we haven't independently verified that, I mean, it does seem like it's a pretty serious matter. And it has come up in the UK Parliament today with lots of lawmakers expressing anguish, especially at the way this entire process was handled.
1: The unions say that this is now not a viable business. I, what is going on in terms of... This, this ferry operator not finding itself in a position where it can pay its bills. I, how have we got here? Is this Brexit related? Is this fuel price related? What's going on there?
8: So b said that essentially they can't continue with, without making major changes. And they've cited Brexit as well as COVID-19 for having battered their finances. They said that over a 12-month period, their losses were about £100 million, and that they, in the current state, it wasn't a viable business. And so it said that its survival depended on making swift and significant changes, and these changes include sort of firing 800 workers.
1: We live on an island. Ferries are quite important. Are there alternatives? Clearly, there are in the form of the Channel Tunnel, but in terms of other companies operating, are there alternatives? And are those alternatives on a viable economic footing as well?
8: So there are alternatives. Uh, The Channel Crossing, especially dover calais is served by other ferry operators, including the DFDS, which is Denmark-based, as well as Irish ferries, which is Dublin-based. And obviously, you have the Channel Tunnel as well, which can take trucks and cars. But it, it is a fairly significant, since P&O has a very large market share of the cross-channel crossings, as well as between the UK and Northern Ireland, and between the UK and Ireland. So it is a fairly significant operator of ferries, and ferries are crucial for getting things in and out of the country and While the government's saying so far that there will not be much impact from piano halting operations, we need to wait and watch in
1: terms of i in terms of what comes next i said I, the government's taking as you say a reasonably kind of we'll sort this out kind of attitude but but are we going to see if this lasts for more than a few days? Is that, are there going to be problems here?
8: So it really depends on what happens next. So the unions are sort of pitching for a battle, and essentially they are asking for PNO to sort of reverse its decision. And it really depends on whether or not PNO, what they decide to do next. And essentially, if they go ahead with this, there may be further protests which could uh, disrupt uh, transport and obviously mean that PO could have to halt operations for longer. But it really depends on how this whole thing plays out and I think it's still pretty early and we'll have to see over the next coming do, days do we, really.
1: Do we I, who are they using to, to to crew the ships? Are these just non unionized sailors?
8: So yes, uh PNO has said that they've replaced uh, they've replaced their employees with agency workers and we haven't really got a clear understanding of who those agency workers are because the unions have been alleging that it is foreign workers. But we really need to see what those, who those workers are and how what experience they have really crossing this channel.
1: Sid, we will watch with interest. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Bluebird's Sid health philip on what is happening with P&O. Up next, we're going to stay with the port's theme. We're joined by Gene Soroka from the port of L.A.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAV Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. This is The Cable. So out in China, a number of regions remain in lockdown as a result of China's COVID policy. Probably the most significant economically is the area of Shenzhen, the region of Shenzhen. The city has been locked down. We're starting to see some of that being eased over the last 24 hours. We're starting to see uh, some businesses being able to restart. For instance, the Foxconn facility where it manufactures iPhones for Apple is starting restarting. Uh, This is a huge port, though. The fourth biggest ports in the world uh, by volume are out of China. Shenzhen is the fourth largest. um, And we are starting to see um, some impact from that now spreading around the world. Obviously, how long it remains locked down for is hugely significant. Uh, In terms of where a lot of the stuff out of Shenzhen goes, well, it goes to the uh, west coast of the United States, to places uh, like Long Beach, the port of L.A. The port of L.A. is run by a man called Gene Soroka. He joined us. us in New York a little bit earlier on at Bloomberg's headquarters. Let's take a listen to our conversation.
6: We're watching this very closely, keeping up with our colleagues overseas, but we're also watching the impacts around closures of these factories. That's going to be key. As we've witnessed in the past, the Pearl River Delta area of container terminals and ports allows us to move that cargo around. So if the port and complex in and around Shenzhen, specifically Yantian Container Terminal, shuts down, we can move to the west side over to Chiwan or up the coast to Nansha, Guangzhou, Dongguan, etc. But it's the factory segment that we're going to be watching the pause will be minimal compared to what we've seen in the past but then when they come back to work they're going to need to catch up on orders so we will probably see a lull in four weeks time based on these closures and then a pretty quick rebound when workers come back that gives us some time to work down the cargo that we have here now and be prepared
0: gene have you seen any impact of the russia ukraine crisis yet and if you do see an impact how do you expect that to play out
6: No impact on freight. Port of Los Angeles only has less than two-tenths of one percent of its cargo originating or destined to Russia but what we are watching are the flow of agricultural commodities and where the world markets are going to have to pick up to help the European Union. Second, we're watching very closely on the distribution of energy products as the world is right now. And equally as important to us the cyber threatscape. We've got the nation's first and still only cybersecurity operations center. It's now stopping 40 million intrusion attempts a month and that's double what it was before COVID-19.
1: Incredible. Wow. That's an incredible number. Um, Let's talk about what we're seeing in the US economy right now, Gene. You are obviously the gateway for that economy uh, in so many ways. The, The Fed was talking yesterday about the strength that it still sees in the economy, the demand that it still sees in the economy.
6: What are you seeing? Any sign of things slowing down or is this an economy that is still roaring ahead? It still is moving very fast, Guy. January and February were all-time record months at the Port of Los Angeles for container flow in and outbound. We're also seeing that the second quarter, as projected, will be major retailers and home improvement stores building their inventories back up. We're at the lowest inventory sales ratio we've been in the country for over a decade, and that needs to pick up from a safety stock perspective. So while this lull may be coming because of what we see in South China, And that's about a third of all of our cargo. We're still going to see a very strong Q2 coming off a good first two months to start the year.
0: I'd like to move a little bit to policy, because I know we've had a new initiative from the Biden administration um, supporting the supply chain data flow. Talk to us about what that means in terms of what will we get out of this new initiative?
6: Yeah, it's it's about interoperability and having these t- major players in the supply chain share their information okay. in Los Angeles we've got the country's only port community information sharing system through the port optimizer we're decades behind other trading nations like Germany Belgium, Singapore with their systems. The idea is from service providers to cargo owners, importers and exporters, get your data into a multi-dimensional platform so we can start seeing around corners and over hills, preparing for spikes or declines in business much better than we're doing today. As a country, we're working off of spreadsheets and conference calls. We need to improve that data share. And that's exactly what Flow is gonna
0: do. And if I could follow up on that really quickly, how does that then, pair with what you were talking about with cyber attacks, what will be the security measures put around such a comprehensive system of information? to ensure that cyber attacks don't impact that data.
6: Yeah, Gina, that's a necessity, and that's why we've gone from the Cybersecurity Operations Center to a Cyber Resilience Center, which for the first time brings the private sector in under the FBI's Neighborhood Cyberhood Watch Program. If someone gets impacted, they can share that data, we can synthesize it across the port community. We've got to now scale that nationwide.
1: Gene, in terms of the bottlenecks that you're experiencing right now, I, you and I have talked uh, over the last 18 months, two years, as we worked our way through the pandemic. Uh, it's been people, it's been trucks, it's been all kinds of things that have caused bottlenecks.
6: Where are they right now? Mm -hmm. The port's in much better shape, Guy. In fact, cargo velocity has increased so much that over the last 30 days, we've moved out 16% more cargo than we did in the fourth quarter on average. So that productivity to get goods into the domestic supply chain has improved tremendously. But... We still have 55% of our truck gates that go unused every day. We've got to continue to encourage the cargo owners to pick up their goods when they come in, not use the port as a warehouse but as a transit facility as it was designed. We've got latent capacity right now to catch this next wave of cargo.
0: Why do you have so much of that capacity open? What is the the holdup? Why aren't the trucks picking up the goods at this point?
6: There are many reasons, Gina, operationally, process-wise, information-sharing-wise. But what we've seen is a lot of the big retailers have ordered just in case, not just in time. Uh So we've got to do a better job as a community segmenting that cargo. So if it's not needed in market right now, just move it to the side. So those critical goods, 20% of all our imports are manufacturing parts and components. We've got to get those to the factory floors. devices for our hospitals and medical community, and other time-sensitive products. If we can keep segmenting, we'll do a good job of moving cargo velocity through the port system.
1: Gene Soroka, the executive director of the Port of Los Angeles, talking to Gina and adams and myself a little bit earlier on today. Quick update on where we are with financial assets around the world. Brent crude up very sharply. The price of oil rising today. Brent up 8.5%. In terms of US equity markets, the Nasdaq climbing, continuing to climb. Session highs up by 1.1%. The S&P trading at 44 on the nose, up by 9 tenths of 1%. Hope you enjoyed the show. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg.